Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, uh, you are coming from isolation. I am actually here at the ABC News Washington Bureau, but I've got to tell you, there aren't many of my colleagues around here. We uh, we don't see a lot of each other anymore, do we? No, it's it's uh, it's one of the it's one of the, uh, the the consequences of social distancing. It matters for our jobs as well. And I've noticed the White House briefing room, John, has gotten a little more sparse um, by design uh, with you as the, the 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 president of the Correspondents Association. Uh, even even reporters on their way in and out uh, getting uh, getting their temperatures taken and uh, just everyone trying to practice as much of the uh, as much as what we're preaching as possible. It's a strange time to be uh, at the White House. I'm not spending as much time as I usually do over there, but I am over there for many of the briefings. And we have had to dramatically decrease the number of people working in the White House uh, briefing room and in the workspace for the for the reporters on the other side of the briefing room. And it has not been easy. Um, we've gone through three efforts, distinct efforts, to reduce the number of people, the most dramatic uh, we had to take uh, after hearing um, about our one of our colleagues, one of my colleagues who we, we are not naming, but one of one of my colleagues we believe uh, has, has a coronavirus that we're calling it a suspected case because uh, this individual um, has all of the symptoms um, and is tested negative for everything else. Uh, finally, got a coronavirus test late Monday. Uh, and was told uh, it would be, you know, several days before the results would come back. But we are treating it as if it is a positive, and we moved uh, very swiftly to reduce the numbers uh, about in half again uh, at the White House. So if you look, uh, we now have just 14 reporters sitting in those 49 seats, uh, giving us – we're still not in compliance with the uh, CDC guidelines of, you know, no gatherings more than 10 people. Um, but we are at least um, uh, pretty close, if not uh, in compliance, with the notion of six feet apart uh, in the briefing room. But it's brutal. It's a tough time. And a lot of major news organizations, Rick, major news organizations on the front lines of covering this story have elected not to send their reporters to the White House anymore during this time. Um, and it's, you can fully understand that decision and you can also fully understand the instincts of everybody who covers that beat wanting to be there and wanting to ask the president, uh, the vice president, the coronavirus task force leaders questions, uh, during what is the biggest story possibly of our lifetime. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like that. And, and I know you've been, um, front row at the Trump show for all that. Is that the title of a, do you know anything about that, John? Do we get anything coming up on, on that, uh, on that front? Uh, yes, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I don't know if I've, if I've told you about this in the past, but I have a book that will be coming out next week, a uh, front row at the Trump show. Uh, um, and it was, um, I've never worked harder on a, on a project. Uh, I was spent much of the past year, uh, writing it and researching it, reporting it out. It's a story of what it is like to be covering uh, this White House, this president, and it has some vintage. Uh, our, our friend Mike Allen at Axios somehow got a hold of a, of a photograph uh, that is in the book of, of me and Donald Trump in Trump Tower in 1994. Uh, oh. I've known him for a long, long time. 
And uh, uh, but you know, it's strange to have the book coming out uh, at precisely the moment uh, when nationwide bookstores are closed. I don't know if that would have been the <laughs> ideal uh, timing. I would have uh, I would have shot for. Um, but I have to say, even though this was obviously completed before the current crisis, uh, you see in, in, in what I have witnessed and what I write in this book, you see the seeds of, 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 of the current crisis. You see Donald Trump's management style. You see the complications that arise out of uh, you know, the, a, a situation where half the country doesn't believe what the president or his administration say. Uh, and the other half doesn't believe what they read or see uh, or or hear in the um, you know major news organizations, uh, newspapers, television, news. Um, so it's uh, it's it's a troubling time. <laughs> it's a really troubling time. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that in a way uh, the, the the book is, although I don't know. I guess you'll have to order on Amazon because you can't go to a bookstore. But uh, I, I think it's as I think it's even more relevant than. Um, uh, than I thought it would be. And John, talk about what you've seen these these last couple of weeks at the White House, because it does seem like this president, uh, he's displayed some touches, the vintage touches of uh, of contradictions, of misinformation. Um, it's He spent a good part of the early part of the crisis uh, trying to downplay the potential impact. Uh, and, and even now, you're hearing, to my to my ears at least, a lot of happy talk, a lot of just outright and probably mostly if not entirely unjustified optimism about how close we are to the end of a crisis that's still developing well uh, you know first of all let's take let's take that in in two aspects of that you know one is the uh the management style you know one of the things that i i talk about in in the book is the ways in which um senior officials in the Trump White House tried to steer the president, tried to protect him from some of his more destructive uh, tendencies, uh, tried to literally thwart uh, what he was trying to do because they felt he didn't really mean it and he would come around if they just, you know, ignored it, stopped it, paused it. It would it would it would the president would move on to something else, Uh, you know, to a degree. This was. The, the way things worked with Reince Priebus, who was not a particularly strong chief of staff, to say the least, but somebody who, uh, you know, who, who tried to put some sense of of of, of order into a very disorderly uh, West Wing, and then much more so with John Kelly, who tried to impose military order and limit who was getting into the president and uh, and, and really kind of take the reins. That's when we saw the anonymous op-ed, you know, about you know a, a senior. Uh, officials saying that they were protecting the country uh, by thwarting uh, their boss. Um, well, you know Kelly eventually, and this is documented pretty, pretty uh, clearly. I uh, ended up losing control well before he was removed as chief of staff, and then Mick Mulvaney came in and was never even actually chief of staff. He was just acting chief of staff. And now, during this crisis, Rick, we are literally at a point where there is not a chief of staff or an acting chief of staff because Mark Meadows is the replacement for Mick Mulvaney. Mick Mulvaney uh, was removed at the beginning of this crisis, and uh, Meadows was announced as his replacement. But as we speak right now on the Powerhouse Politics podcast, Mark Meadows is still a member of Congress and is not officially the chief of staff. So there is literally no chief of staff at the White House. This is the president um, without 
any guardrails whatsoever. This is the president who believes he knows what is best, as he always does, but doesn't have anybody trying to really steer him. You know, he's got his medical experts. He's got his, you know, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, uh, but those are not senior advisors in the West Wing steering where he is going. Um, and, it, and it is really, really something to see. Um, and, and, and that's why we have seen, you know, just uh, wild turns in how he has handled uh, uh, this crisis. Um, I describe uh, uh, one more point. On this. I, I describe in, in the book uh, a scene from September of, of last year where the president called me in to chew me out, called me into the Oval Office to chew me out, a meeting that lasted nearly an hour uh, over a, over over about 11 seconds worth of, uh, of reporting on World News Tonight about Hurricane Dorian where I pointed out uh, something that blew up a little while later uh, that, that he had incorrectly said that Alabama was in the path of a hurricane. He cares deeply about how he is covered, about about the way uh, his administration and his, his uh, uh, own actions are covered in television news and in the newspapers. That's what he cares about. I mean, this was a really trivial point. And you know, he calls me in. He spends nearly an hour of his day uh, complaining about a kind of a throwaway line that, where I pointed out the National Weather Service had, um, you know, t- had said that actually the hurricane wasn't going to Alabama. You know, he, he spent a week is, after that meeting with the Sharpie and changing, you know, FEMA's maps yeah. and all this crazy stuff. Now, that was all kind of maybe trivial and didn't really matter much. I mean, maybe it mattered a little bit if you were like – hunkering down in Alabama and you didn't have to but it, you know it wasn't that it wasn't that big a story but now now we see a crisis where the credibility of what comes out of the White House is incredibly important um, and the president as you alluded to wants to be able to point to good news wants to be able to talk about the great job he's doing and you get the sense that the thing is that is foremost in his mind is the way his actions are being perceived. So, you know, in this Fox News town hall uh, meeting, after he, he, interview, he talks to Bill Hemmer there in the colonnade, and he says that he would love to see everybody back by Easter. He'd love to see churches filled with people. Uh, you know, basically life back to normal by Easter, which is April 12th, by the way. This is not, this is not that far away. Uh, so I asked him about that in the, uh, in the, in the latest briefing. Mr. President, if you look at what we've just seen in the last day or so, you've seen uh, the number of known coronavirus cases in the country double in just two days. Another 95 people have died just in the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, New York, New York's governor is saying this is spreading like a bullet train across the country. And the governor of Louisiana is saying that his, country, that his state uh, may not be able to handle the cases uh, that they're facing uh, by the by early April. So, what are you seeing in all of this that leads you to think yeah, that we're we could reopen by sure. Easter or even earlier? Sure. We're working with all of them. We can be talking about large sections of our country because there are sections of our country that you didn't talk about that are doing unbelievably well. They have very little incidents or problem, uh, very small numbers. It's very possible that they won't be ever subject to what's happening in New York. New York is definitely a hot spot. There's no question about it. Uh, and you know what we're doing in New York to try and help. And uh, I think we're doing an incredible job. We're going to have the hospitals up quickly, the medical centers also quickly. Uh, but we'll just have to see. We have to follow it. We have to see. We're going to look at that curve. We're going to see when it starts coming down. 
so you know th- there you go uh he he wants to project optimism and progress um you know maybe even data be damned yeah and i think that that's the part of it that i think is is going to be difficult to to judge through all of this because those briefings have been striking for me for how much how many scientists are there i mean anthony fauci who you know, is is as well known a presence um, in in major incidents as there is um, has been at most of these briefings, and there is a lot of input from the experts, from the scientists. Uh, but then you have the president, who has made clear that he's taking those inputs and making his own judgments, uh, and it it raises, I think, fundamental questions about. Um, how a White House operates, how a West Wing operates, how the apparatus of a federal government operates, uh, and the question of whether there's anyone there who can tell the president, you're just wrong about this, or you just cannot do this, uh, as has been the case at other parts uh, of, of this presidency. Whether that, that structure exists anymore, and you're, you're, you're hinting toward it not existing anymore, John, uh, I think that's a, that's a really, really fundamental thing to understand about how this unfolds and, and the way the president answers questions and the way the president reacts to information that he's getting from all over the country. Uh, this is as big a crisis as any president uh, can face. I mean, short of a war, maybe even more than, than many wars, this is a, a fundamental challenge to, to governance. Uh, and it's also a time where you have to have trust in institutions, you have to have trust in the federal government uh, and the president is taking the reins. And, and you know, and we and it must be said that uh, the public, at least in this point, at this point, we've seen a number of polls. Most of the people uh, approve of the way he is handling this crisis at this moment, which is the you know essentially some of the highest uh, approval. Now, that's not his overall approval rating, but but that is you know that is high. That is high for this president, and 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 I, I think that what that what you're seeing reflected there is that people want to be able to trust what they hear coming out of the federal government at a moment like this. They want to believe that actions are being taken by those with the power to take those actions that will protect them, protect the country, protect them. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that holds. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that the, the, the president, this is a time when you People want to be able to know that they are getting credible information because the information they're getting is affecting the way they act and may literally be a, a matter of, of life or death. Yeah, and and I, I applaud you and the others that are asking tough questions up there at these briefings, the folks on Capitol Hill who are – you know, in the middle of, uh, of of an outbreak of its own, uh, it is uh, it is. There's a lot of there's a lot of personal and professional sacrifice that goes into these jobs. Um, you know, I, I'll I'll say for one, I found a lot of a lot of uh, 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 personal satisfaction out of knowing that uh, we have colleagues like you and that we're doing these jobs that we do in these times because these are there's as big as it gets. Uh, politics politics aside, for even a half a second, and there'll be lots of time to bring political ramifications and repercussions back into the discussion. Uh, this is just about uh, this is about the country. This is about life and death, and it's uh, it's quite a moment. All right, Rick. On that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk to Ron Klain, uh, who is a, uh, a senior advisor to uh, Joe Biden, but also somebody in the Obama administration who served as the point person uh, for the uh, Ebola uh, epidemic uh, and somebody who knows a little something about uh, 
about how government approaches a crisis like this. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're joined now by Ron Klain, of course, an advisor to Joe Biden and also uh, the former we, – we, we called you the Ebola czar. I don't know. That, that wasn't your exact title, Ron. But, no, uh, I was that, the that, uh, White House how, Ebola response coordinator. Yes. We, 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 we shortened that to, to, to Ebola czar back in the day, and I was, uh, I was covering that from the White House – and I, I, I know you've, uh, you've been out there now talking about the ways in which Donald Trump has mismanaged uh, this crisis, and, uh, and you've, you've got some powerful things to say on that. But I wanted to start by getting your uh, assessment of the path forward. Um, in short, what should be happening now that is not happening? Uh, well, so first uh – you know, the path forward involves fixing the things that still aren't fixed yet. There are three things that are really, really urgent that remain unfixed. Uh, first, notwithstanding all the rhetoric and the promises, uh, testing is not widely available and ubiquitous in this country. And uh, there are people still who have symptoms who can't get tests, people who, when they get tests, wait six, seven days for the result. Uh, and uh, that really impedes treatment and effective isolation of the disease. And so, you know, it's 25 days since the White House promised there'd be a million tests four days after that day. We aren't even in a million tests 25 days late, later. Uh, we, we trail the entire developed world in testing our population. And that's one reason why we are leading the entire developed world uh, in, the, in the acceleration of cases. We're adding 10,000 cases a day, and it's worst. China added 5,000 cases a day. So we're on the path to becoming having a worse outbreak here, epidemic here than they had in China, worse than they had in Italy. That's the path we're on. The failure of testing is part of that path that still needs to be fixed. Secondly, we still need hospital beds. Cities all over the country are running out of hospital beds. The mayor of Atlanta announced yesterday that Atlanta, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention in this, uh, had every ER bed in the city filled yesterday. Uh, New York is headed towards a crisis point as well. So will other cities uh, sooner rather than later. And again, we haven't really done very much. There's been a lot of, again, a lot of PR around two hospital ships. That's 2,000 beds. We need tens of thousands of additional temporary beds. Uh, it's not really, um, not really moving, not really making uh, things happen. It's still not happening. And then finally, we need gear. And uh, uh, the doctors and nurses who are on the front lines are asked, being asked to treat patients unsafely without protective gear. Uh, that could be fixed by the president invoking the Defense Production Act so he can control the supply chain. While we did not invoke the Defense Production Act under President Obama for Ebola, we did take control of the supply chain. We're very aggressive in managing it, getting the gear where it needed to get. Right now, the president's just saying basically every state, every hospital, you're on your own. Good luck. And as a result, doctors and nurses are reusing gear, are using inadequate gear. And what's going to happen is they're going to get sick. And that's not only sad for the doctors and nurses that they get sick. But it means just when we need more people working in the hospitals, we're going to have fewer, not more, because more and more we're going to have to send them home. So I think those are the three really urgent needs, and uh, and we're failing on all three of them right now. The messaging from the White House has been all over the map, and and the and the and they have said you know states basically go out and get it for yourself. And there was the president famously saying, "I'm not your uh, shipping clerk." The black clerk, yeah, um, yeah, but but. But they are. I mean, you know, FEMA is. I mean, they they tell us anyway that they are uh, shipping supplies out to the states, and uh, you know, four thousand ventilators to New York. Now, when Cuomo says he needs forty thousand, it's it's not enough. Uh, but but they are they are doing some of that. Um, but Mike, but John, 
not 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 enough is a life. I mean, this isn't a negotiation between Andrew Cuomo and Donald Trump over whether or not no, I oh I want forty to seventy four thousand. I mean, uh, New Yorkers are going to show up in the hospital and die because they're not ventilators. So no, I, it's not just that four thousand is not enough. It's that four thousand is a life or death deficiency. I, there are at least fifteen thousand ventilators in the Federal Reserve right now in the national strategic stockpile that should come out of the stockpile and be, be deployed, right? And so, I mean, th- these are fixable problems. They're not being fixed. Yeah, I, I understand. And, and the um, you, you mentioned testing, and, and this one hits home. I, I had to announce to the, to the press corps that we had, you know, one of our own uh, White House reporter uh, with a suspected case of, of uh, coronavirus. I had to say suspected because there hasn't, at, at, at that point, this reporter had not been tested. This reporter has now been tested, uh, but I mean, we may wait. We may still be waiting a few days uh, for the results. Uh, the reporter was told four or five days. I know, I know people personally uh, who have been tested who were told the same thing, and, and, and it took a week. Um, and it, it is maddeningly frustrating, especially for you know. I mean, in our our little microcosm working in that space at the White House, you know, people want to know. I mean, how long do I have to self isolate? This is, but but let me let me ask you much more broadly your sense take all the politics out of it all of this what how bad do you think this is going to get well i think john uh it's going to get very bad and i guess you know i i suppose bad is a you know it's a vague phrase so let's get really specific right we are adding 10,000 cases a day in the U.S., and that probably understates uh, the number of cases because, we, as you just alluded to, we're still not testing in large parts of the country. We're blind to how much this is. And, uh, and as I said a minute ago, that means we're adding cases twice as fast as Italy added them. And everyone watched two weeks ago what was going on in Italy and the scenes of misery and despair as uh, people were not getting treated. And um, are you and saying twice as fast in, 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 in whole in numbers or in or, or, or per capita? I mean, obviously, we're much bigger than in, Italy. In, in absolute numbers. OK. Right. And obviously, Italy is a smaller country or a larger country. But that number's still climbing. So it's twice as fast today. It might be three or four times as fast a day or two from now. That is, we're having a conversation some, in Washington sometimes about what happens when it's over. And in fact, we're at the place where it's still getting worse. We're, we're, we're still climbing up the curve. If this is a roller coaster ride, we're, we're not debating. We're not really right now living in the world where uh, we're going on the downhill side. We're still on the uphill side. Um, and, uh, and so how much worse it gets, we don't know. Uh, obviously, this country is a fraction of the size of China. We're adding cases at twice the rate that China was adding them at any point in time. And so... Uh, and, and again, that may well undercount the number of cases we have. So I think this is going to continue. This is very bad right now. It is going to get worse. And what's going to happen, John, is I think it's also going to get worse at different points in different places of the country. New York right now is the epicenter. Uh, it will crest there maybe in seven to ten days. So I think it will continue to get worse over the next week in New York. may stop getting worse at that point in time. But then it will start getting worse in L.A. or pick some other city, right? I mean, I think uh, what's happening in New York is not only going to happen in New York. 
Ron, you, you mentioned in the video over the weekend uh, via the, the Biden campaign, the, the decision by the Trump administration to shutter the permanent pandemic response office, which was opened um, on, on your recommendation in the in the Obama White House. Enlighten us. What what does that mean? What would that office have been doing? And is there a function that it even now would be serving that is underserved in the response going forward? Well, look, I think what it would have done had it continued to operate, and, be, and let's be clear, again, it's not really a partisan issue. We started it in the Obama administration. President Trump continued it for the first year and a half of his presidency. It was a decision by uh, John Bolton to um, uh, to disband this unit because he thought kind of epidemics weren't really a hard power question. They were kind of soft and should be left to healthcare people to work on these pandemic things, not security people. Uh, what they would have done is first, they would have certainly sounded the alarm earlier and stronger because they would have had the kind of intelligence we've seen and would have gone to the president. I think the one of the big problems we had here was in January <clears throat> when we were getting uh, early signals of how bad this would be. Why didn't Donald Trump engage President Xi to get our people on the ground when we were still being stonewalled? Why didn't he press the Chinese to give us more access to real-time data and so on and so forth? And I think that's in part because there was no one at the White House who really owned this problem. And so this was kind of in the first briefing that Alex Azar did. He said, well, we've called, the health department's called the Chinese health department to get this information. But it wasn't a White House thing. And I think that was a critical mistake. Now, I also think it's heavily influenced by President Trump's trade politics. He was trying to make nice with President Xi uh, uh, to get the trade deal done when all this was happening. And that's why on January 24th is... Virtually every expert in the world said this is a disaster spiraling out of control. The president tweeted, uh, President Xi's doing a great job. All Americans should thank him. So uh, there was no one at the White House who was a counterweight to those forces. And then there was no one at the White House to solve the problems that arose early. When it became clear that the decision to abandon the World Health Organization test and build our own wasn't working, no one at the White House fixed that problem. When it became clear that the alternative test was stuck in a bureaucratic war between CDC and FDA, no one at the White House fixed that problem. Same thing for the supply chain problem. Same thing for this hospital problem. There was no one really driving that until uh, Vice President Pence was put in charge uh, very, late in the, very late in the game here in late February. And so, uh, look, I think now uh, I still think there's a weakness in what's been set up, which is confusion. Uh, who's really in charge? Is Mike Pence in charge? Is Debbie Burks in charge? There's talk that Jared Kushner has his own task force. Uh, and so I think what's really lacking is centralized leadership. I hear all the time on the supply chain thing from people still in the government that there, there are people at FEMA working on it, people at DOD working on it, people at the task force working on it. No one really knows who to take direction from. Uh, I heard uh, uh, a couple weeks ago that manufacturers of the chemicals for the testing products were getting confusing signals from the Kushner task force versus the Pence task force. Well, not their priority was supplying private testing labs first, or public health testing labs first. So I still think there's a lot of confusion and disorganization that needs to be fixed. And, and Ron, you've known Vice President Biden for a long time, served as his chief of staff uh, over at the White House, known him for decades. What, take us inside how the vice president, he talked recently about getting some long briefings. I assume you're part of those briefings with the latest on this. And, and, and the tone that you feel like is appropriate for this moment, what is, what is Vice President Biden trying to convey at this time where um, a lot of the country is obviously looking for leadership. Uh, it's clear that he's very likely to be the Democratic nominee, and it's a, it's a time of vast uncertainty all around. 
Yeah, look, I think he's been trying to convey a couple things. One, I think he's always tried to convey a sense of compassion and reassurance. Uh, you know, I'm struck by the fact that every time he talks about this, he always begins by talking about the families that have already been hit by this disease and the, and the people who are suffering from that, suffering from the consequences of that, people like your colleagues, John, at ABC. And, and so I think, you know, I think for him it always starts with kind of compassion and a human touch and understanding that this really affects people's lives in a real way. Um, and then I think, you know, he's tried to lay out very clearly what he would do. And in the major speech he gave on this about two weeks ago, where he laid out a very detailed plan, 13 pages of ideas, you can find them on JoeBiden.com. Uh, you know, he made it very clear that, by the way, he hoped President Trump would do the right thing here. He thought President Trump would take his plan and implement his plan. And if he did, Trump would, you know, probably be stronger politically, it might help Trump win the election. But this is about saving lives, it's not about an election. And it's about getting the right things done. And so I think he's made that very, very clear in, in details. And then, you know, he does get uh, daily briefings about how various aspects of this are going, what's what's working, what's not working. And then has been making statements almost every day about what things need to be fixed and how he would propose to fix them. And I think right now, a lot of that is on this question of invoking the Defense Production Act to really ramp up the production of the, the masks, the gowns, the gloves, the face shields, all these things that particularly doctors and nurses, but, but others too, technicians and other people uh, need to treat patients safely. Ron, and Ron, I know, I know you have to go, but I, if I, before you go, if I can ask you to look, look into the future a bit here. Uh, the president obviously uh, talked about uh, people going back to packed churches uh, on April 12th for Easter. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but looking forward, uh, I see one big event on the horizon – uh, in July, the, uh, the the Democratic convention uh, in Milwaukee, the Republicans are later in August, but but July 12th doesn't feel all that long from now. Do you think we're going to be in a position in this country where we are back to normal to the degree that uh, you could have a, a political convention? I mean, that that's one of the most crowded places I've ever been as a national yeah. political convention. Uh, well, there's no question it's very crowded. Look, I'm not going to speculate about that I'm going to let the DNC get the best advice they can get and make the best decisions they can make about uh, how to how to run a convention in this circumstance, whether or not to run the convention, what the alternatives are uh, under our party rules and whatnot. But I think to your broader question, John, I mean, I do think that as we think about what it's like to uh, increase levels of activity, uh, it isn't an all or nothing question. And I think that's one unfortunate thing in the dialogue right now is it's kind of coming across as like, uh, the economy has a big on-off switch, and it's now turned to off, and we're going to turn it to on at some point in time, and things are going to go back exactly the way they were. And I think instead we ought to think about it more as a dial, which is right now we're not even in off, right? There are a lot of people busy at work right now, uh, not just doctors, nurses, first responders, but grocery store checkout people and the people stocking the grocery stores and the people growing the food and putting it in trucks and the people driving the trucks, and, and the same thing with, uh, you know, convenience stores and, and drug stores and laundromats and dry cleaners and all the people cooking food and delivering food. So post offices are open. Post, post offices are open. I mean, you know, Governor Cuomo issued one of the strongest and smartest orders on this topic. And even so, there are 59 occupations exempt from his order. And so I think when we think about this shutdown mode, even though there are a lot of people out there who are going to sadly get the disease and continue to spread the disease because they're doing jobs that we need them to do. So that's one side of the equation. And, and so our policy about the rest of us 
is going to be we need to stay home longer so we can kind of sort out all that. Then on the other hand, John, when we come back to work, uh, it's not going to be everything back all at once the way it was. Uh, it'll be easier to open some stores where fewer people go in there and they're more spread out than, say, going back to playing NBA basketball games with fully packed arenas on day one. And, uh, and maybe even the way we work will need to change a little bit. Maybe instead of being at desks all close to one another, we should kind of spread people out a little more in the workplace or spread out people on the production line a little more, even if that means making slightly fewer things. So I think we need to have some smart, sophisticated planning about what restoration of ec- and economic activity looks like. And it isn't kind of this on-off thing. And I think it's still pretty much, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen on Easter. Um, But I think now is the time to start to do this planning because it's going to be complicated to figure out uh, what comes on first, how it comes on, what comes on second, what comes on third, uh, how we kind of gradually, safely start to ramp things back up. And and I know this is not the Spanish flu, this pandemic, but uh, one of the things that I noticed early on is looking at the graph of of the toll that that epi- pandemic uh, uh, had. We had the highest level of deaths in late October 1918. Yeah. Um, so it just makes me wonder if, if that we are doing contingency plans and should we be doing contingency plans if this if 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 coronavirus uh, ends up maybe dissipating and coming back with a vengeance. In the fall, uh, how do we conduct a national election if we are at uh, peak pandemic? Well, look, so I think there is some risk that it comes back. I think it's a great question, John. But I don't think this is a complicated answer, which is people should be able to vote by mail. And we have that in 22, 23 states already. I know Congress is looking at making this a national thing for the federal elections. And it's the safest thing possible. It's not only for this pandemic, but, you know, in the future, there are going to be other things, states where there are natural disasters, states where other things happen. And so, um, you know, we there was a primary in Florida, uh, you know, a little more than a week ago. Uh, and even with the pandemic, there was a uh, turnout that was higher than four years earlier because largely people voted by mail. It's safe. It's convenient. It's effective. It's secure. And uh, we should be putting that in place. So that no matter what happens in November, everyone has a safe way to cast a vote. And you think that could be put in place nation, nationwide by November of this of this year? No question about it. It's it, again, you know, like mail is not technologically complicated, and um, and and right now again we do it in, in about half the states that cover more than half the country's population. So um, this is just a question of get. It's a question of just making it happen. Uh, it could it could easily happen in time for November. All right, Ron Klain, thank you for taking time to talk to us. We hope we can check in with you again uh, in the in the weeks ahead. Thank you very much. Appreciate you bet. Your, Thanks for having me. Everything. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Ron. Rick, I I, I think that that is going to be uh, uh, you know the the politics of uh, I think people have very little patience for for the kind of you know politics of all this at a time when people are trying to figure out what should be done, how to protect themselves. Um, what what is the smart, effective way to deal with this uh, with this crisis? But the other aspect of the politics is literally what is going to happen with the elections going forward. The primary elections are the most immediate. We still have primary elections, even though Biden is pretty damn close to being the presumptive nominee. Maybe is, um, but 
you know, are conventions going to happen? If they happen, are they going to look like they've looked in the past? And are we prepared for the possibility that we could be at peak pandemic right as the presidential election is happening? Um, I, I think that those are a question. I, I don't hear a lot of talk about that. And may, maybe it's happening behind the scenes. And I've asked about it at the White House. Didn't really get an answer. Uh, but but I, th- those are some of the questions I have looking forward. Yeah, it's it is something that's under active consideration um, at the uh, at the at both national parties vis-a-vis the uh, the conventions. conventions yeah. uh, they're saying that they're still on, but you know they're also saying that they're on until they're not on, and they there's not much they can do about it now. There's a lot of logistical considerations, uh, also of the fact that the NBA season may resume. Guess what? That's where they do conventions these days, or these NBA arenas. So there's a lot of reasons that it gets complicated in a hurry. Um, I, I don't know where the betting line is now on whether we're back to any semblance of normalcy by then, but it, it does feel like a very distant idea that you could have those uh, th- those sort of gatherings this summer. On the question of voting, uh, it's been happening at the state level, and this is the, the first time that I can recall that um, states are moving uh, to backload primaries rather than frontload, uh, uh, the point that our colleague Kendall Carson made today online. It, you, usually we're used to people kind of jumping the line, moving ahead as much as they can. Now they're moving back because uh, if you still are to vote, you want to give yourself as much space as possible. There's been a vast expansion in vote by mail. Uh, but um, some of the efforts to try to make it nationwide, as Ron Klain was talking about, have been re- rebuffed. That was something that some Democrats were wanting to have as part of the latest aid packages on Capitol Hill. They haven't gotten that kind of funding. It's an expensive proposition to do nationally. It also has a political uh, ramification, largely seen that vote by mail would, um, would, would, would help Democrats because there's a low income or low propensity voters that are more likely to vote if it's a little bit easier. Um, and to the larger point about politics, I mean, I, I view this event as, as the largest of our lifetime, John, and it's, um, I don't think it's, it's a exaggeration to say that anything that happened before is almost certainly not going to matter when it comes to the 2020 election. Uh, the Mueller report, uh, impeachment, uh, emoluments, disputes, you name it, it feels very small compared to this. And I would add to that that the decisions upon which President Trump and maybe Vice President Biden, the Democrat, as the Democratic nominee, the likely nominee, are to be judged are probably still to come. Uh, that, that the, yes, we can we can say that there, there's mistakes made now, but there may be even larger decision points to come. And uh, politics has resumed, and there are attack ads out there, and there are uh, now daily press conferences involving Vice President Biden. As we know, the president hasn't been shy from taking some political swipes from the White House podium with, with you right there in the front seat. Uh, but um, we really are we are really starting over when it comes to politics. Uh, and, and I don't think we know uh, anything about the kind of political landscape that we're going to be looking at this fall. I, I totally agree. Uh, I will just end on one bit of, uh, of good news out there, apparent good news. Hopefully it's good news. Um, hopefully it's a trend, not, not an isolated thing. But uh, we, we heard from uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, just a short while ago, that hospitali- hospitalization rates in New York have actually slowed, and he said slowed dramatically uh, since the weekend. So let's hope that uh, let's hope that trend uh, continues because it sure looks bad in in, in New York uh, and most of the other indicators. So that is a that is a positive sign. On that note, thank you for listening to Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to Trevor Hastings for working from home to get this thing done, and Avery Miller, our entire powerhouse politics team we will be back soon